I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading. And finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. Our guest this week, Rajula Das, is originally from India, but now makes her home in Wellington, New Zealand. She is an author and a Bengali to English translator. Her debut novel, A Death in Shonagachi, was published in India last year, but has come to the United States with a different title, Small Deaths. Her book was named by the website Crime Reads as a must-read, and Gone Girl author Gillian Flynn recommended Rajula's debut during an appearance on Good Morning America. And she has a brand new baby! So I I always feel lucky when a brand new parent wants to talk to us because they have better things to do like sleeping. Yeah, for sure. But first, we're recording this the Monday after Thanksgiving. It was a bit of a whirlwind Thanksgiving for us. And in fact, my parental unit, my parents are still in the in the abode. They're in the vicinity. (laughs) Yeah. They are downstairs in the kitchen right now. And in fact, I had to text my husband and say, you all need to shush because you could hear it through the the audio. (laughs) I was like, where are you recording? I hear people. (laughs) Yes. But the the parental people are leaving shortly. Anyways, mine started out that I went and visited my son uh, for Thanksgiving and had Thanksgiving with him and spent a couple days there and and then came back and then hosted my parents. And we had a Thanksgiving yesterday, although it wasn't a typical Thanksgiving because I refused. Instead, we had Italian food. (laughs) So there you go. We did our normal thing, which is at my mother-in-law's and and she invites my parents over. So we just have to go to one place, which is nice. And we've been doing that for 16 years uh, where my my parents go to my mother-in-law's. So we're fortunate that we just go to one place. It's 10 minutes from our house. and But we were doing a lot of pet sitting this week, but which is good because my boys needed money. My one son is is learning. He's 15 and has a girlfriend. And he, he told my husband, they were in the car the other day, and he said something like, my girlfriend says, I don't have to get her anything for Christmas, which I think means I have to get her something for Christmas. <laughs> He's learning fast. He's I'm learning. impressed. Yeah. And, and my husband was like, yes, usually with women, if they say you don't have to get me anything, that means you do have to get them something. He said, except your mother. She is the <laughs> exception to that rule. If she says don't get her something. There is a secret language that females often speak. Yeah. That I don't, men I don't speak that. need to learn. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't speak that, which, which is very confusing for my son because, you know, he has grown up learning the language that I speak. Uh, and so now he's having to learn a, a different language. So, I mean, he seems to have gotten it, but it's like, dude, you know, you, you have to stop spending on video games for yourself so that you have money to to buy something for your girlfriend. So, well, I will say that I enjoyed so much not being home for Thanksgiving and being someplace else for Thanksgiving and having someone else make Thanksgiving dinner. We ate it. Well, 
I actually had two Thanksgiving dinners. Both of them were at restaurants and it was so delightful that I may never go back to having a Thanksgiving dinner again. (laughs) And actually it was funny. So, you know, my parents came and my sister and her husband came yesterday and we had our our little family Thanksgiving dinner and they were all saying how they kind of enjoyed it too because they didn't have to do anything on Thanksgiving and Yesterday was kind of low pressure because I had just ordered it from a local Italian restaurant and we could just concentrate on, you know, hanging out. And there wasn't all this like preparation. Yes. Yes. So so I'm thinking this may become a tradition for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was pretty awesome. So did you did you watch anything over the holidays? Did you get any good TV watching in with a long weekend? Uh I had forgotten about this. I'd forgotten that I wanted to see this movie, uh, The Northman. It's on Prime Video and it has Alexander uh, Skarsgård and Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman and Clay's Bang. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but I've seen him in other things. And I was like, oh, I do like him. And it is the story of Amleth. So it's a like a Viking story, but the story of Amleth sort of inspired Shakespeare's Hamlet. And so I was curious to see that. So we watched that and it was it was good. I mean, it's definitely a Viking kind of gory, violent story, but it's it's filmed in Iceland. Uh, and that was so was it know, beautiful? It was gorgeous. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of funny because we were watching. I was like, I think we've been there. You know, there's this one scene where they land uh, on the beach and I said to Dan, I'm like, I think we've been to that beach. So I'm interested in that, but I was a little put off because I had heard that it was extremely violent. It's but pretty is violent. It, is it like gory violent or? Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, there's some blood. Yeah. There's some blood. And Okay. I mean, I can do some violence. I don't love gratuitous violence. Although if it's historical and it's set in Viking period, I mean, pretty much. I don't know that that's gratuitous. That was kind no, of the way, but it, was, the right, way it was, right? Right. right. And he um, was, uh, the the character of Amleth spent time as a berserker. So what's a berserker? A berserker was one of, they were kind of the, the warriors. They were sort of the, I guess, the Viking henchmen. Or, um, oh, huh. Okay. I'd heard that term, but I didn't realize it was a Viking thing. Yeah. Huh. A, a Norse warrior who fought in a trance-like frenzy. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And and so if you don't like violence, this is a movie you probably okay. should not watch. But okay. I again, I was interested from the story part of it, but watching it now I want to actually go find a written telling of the story just so I can see like okay, how close to it because if you know the story of Hamlet, th- this story of Hamlet was different. I mean, it was similar in some ways, but there was a certain nugget of it that you're like, huh, that feels different a little bit than Hamlet. So, you know, I just, I sort of want to go down one of those literature rabbit holes and nerd out. Well, I watched the adaptation of The Wonder, which is, I actually talk about the author Emma Donahue in this episode a little bit when we're talking about what we're reading. Um, But this is a book that she wrote I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, set in 1860s Ireland about a, the main character is an English nurse who comes over because there's a young girl who 
claims, her family claims she's not eaten in four months. And the parish priest thinks that it's, you know, a miracle. And there's a committee in the town that wants that to be documented. And so they bring in a nun and then they bring in this English nurse to sort of watch this girl. And so it stars Florence Pugh and I had been wanting to see it. And my parents were here and our first choice was I wanted to see the Enola Holmes 2 mm-hmm. film, but my parents had already seen it. So then I said, well, that's fine, but now you're going to have to watch The Wonder. And so <laughs> my mom had read the book too. My mm-hmm. father had not. He was not a fan. He said, I think you have to read the book to understand what's going on. I don't really know if that's the case. I think sometimes my father, if it's something he doesn't want to watch, is a little willfully confused mm, mm. by things. Do you know what well, I'm saying? Right, right. I mean, it's probably how I, I, well, no, not probably. It is how I feel about sports. Right. I don't know yes. what's going on. I don't, yeah. I mean, it's like, because I don't care what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah. I but I enjoyed it very much. So if you read the book um, or if you're interested in it, I would recommend that. So, so maybe don't listen to your dad on this one. You know, <laughs> my dad is not a book reader. <laughs> My yeah. father likes action-packed movies, and gotcha. this is not really an action-packed movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Speaking of book adaptations, we didn't actually talk about this with her very much, or at least not on air, but her book is being made into an adaptation, Yeah, I hear, which is very exciting. But as you know, as those things go, I think the rights have been bought, but I don't think she has any idea, like, when it might be coming out. Right. All those things are still in the works. But that must be very exciting to see your book book on the screen so yeah yeah or even the possibility of it being on the screen that that has to be like oh wow somebody can picture this as a movie and I can I can definitely picture it as a movie when we learned that I was like yeah I can I can see this I think it'd be a good movie well let's talk with Rajula we're delighted to welcome Rajula Doss author of the debut novel Small Deaths to the show and we want to get right into asking you questions Rajula because your novel and your life in general are so interesting so thanks for being with us. Thank you Carrie for having me. It's it's delightful to be here. Thank you. So let's start with just a little summary of your book for people who haven't read it. How would you describe your book? I thought of it as a a literary novel, but it turns out that, you know, it has some crime elements and some thriller elements. So, of course, uh, I think that's what people describe it as. So it's about a sex worker in Asia's largest red light district. One day, a friend of hers gets murdered, and that begins her journey, or rather her descent into a very murky situation where everything seems to go out of control, and she has to extricate herself. In this whole story, there is her longtime client and lover, who is an erotic novelist, a corrupt police officer, a pimp on the rise, and a quote-unquote Russian escort called Sonia. So it's a large cast of characters. It's a big story. And um, I hope one that the readers will enjoy. So you, you say that it is a big story. So what was the seed of the idea that the novel grew from? And maybe that seed isn't even in the novel anymore, but what was the first thing 
that started your novel? It's very funny. It's actually really circumstantial. I was in University of East Anglia for a year doing a creative writing placement over there. And I was on a train from Norwich to London, which is about a two-hour train. And this is all the way back in 2014. And there was no Wi-Fi or internet. I didn't have any data on the phone. So, And I was really bored. So I took out my laptop and I had this scene in my head of this small man who's not much to look at who's madly in love with this very beautiful sex worker in Calcutta. And he goes to her and they're having sex. And it is actually BDSM, but he doesn't realize it. And he doesn't know whether he's crying from pain or because he is in love with her. And I found that hilarious. So I was just trying to entertain myself. There was no internet. And I just started writing this scene that was in my head. And I don't know why. I mean, there was I didn't think much of it. And that is actually the first chapter of the book. That's actually where the story starts from. It's the first four pages of the book. And even though I've written and rewritten this book over seven years, actually it took a long time to be in the shape that it is today. That first chapter has, is, is intact apart from editing the line. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. So I have to back the train up a little bit. So when you wrote this, were you, I know you said you were just trying to entertain yourself you had been writing before were you thinking like I I think I want to write a novel or well you were you said you were getting your degree in creative writing yes I was so at that point I was doing a PhD in creative writing but that also was sort of accidental I sort of stumbled into that so the entire thing I've, I've sort of stumbled upon but I mean I've been writing all of my life so to speak and at that point it's just sort of I changed from a literature PhD to a creative writing PhD. And I was working on a novel, which I thought of as this very like, you know, serious literary novel of academic and very boring, to be honest. And I think I was boring myself. I was boring my supervisor. I was boring absolutely everybody. <laughs> and I just think I needed some entertainment in my life. And I just started writing this this little scene. So um, it was sort of an on-the-side project. But I hadn't written a novel. I had written short stories. I'd written poetry. Uh, I've been translating a bit, but this was a side attempt at writing something while I was writing this other novel that was my official novel, so to speak. You had written that, you wrote it on the train, then did you just set it aside or tell us how it progressed into becoming a novel? Yeah, so what happened is I wrote this scene and that was that and, you know, train got to London and I did my London things and I forgot all about it. So I was doing my PhD in Singapore in called Nanyan Technological University. I was in University of East Anglia on a special attachment like a year away in their creative writing program over there. So when I came back to Singapore, there was a, a departmental reading. Uh, we were in an auditorium and people were reading their stuff. It was like literary salon evening. And I didn't know, but then I was called on stage to read <laughs> something and I didn't have anything with me, on me. And this thing happened to be on my phone at that point of time. It was just a document. So I had 
had like absolutely nothing. And I went up to my supervisor and I was like, look, I can't read it because I've got nothing else. And I've got only this one thing and it's got a lot of sex in it. I just can't go up and read all this like sex <laughs> stuff over there. And he was like, look, Rajula, you're an adult. Just make your own decisions. Like basically, I think he, he just about had it with me. And he was just like, just like decide what you want to do. So I just I just went up and I was like, okay, I will just look down. Don't make eye contact. Just read it in a flat voice and get out of here. Like there is nothing, there's nothing else you can do. Um, I, and I read it and it, it's just four pages, like four printed pages. So it wasn't really that long. And the audience was, they were laughing. They were, and this is the first time I basically made anyone laugh that wasn't a friend you know so I was like wow this is going really well so people are laughing I was like, it's not as much of a disaster as I thought it was and the, the next time I saw my supervisor and I gave him uh, the pages of my very literary novel quote unquote he's like hey but like what about that thing that that was interesting <laughs> Why, you know? and he just kept telling me that like every single time I tried to give him pages of the literary novel he kept saying hmm yeah but you should be right that other novel. And then I was like, all right, I give up. Nobody likes this thing that I'm trying to write. So <laughs> let me just write the other one. And then I just, yeah, then it just carried on from there. So sex workers are a very important part of your book. So why was it important for you to write about that? A group that's generally, you know, ignored or they're only redeemed by someone else, usually a, a, you know, a white man, at least in Western culture, when you see them in books and films, why did you want to write about them? Yeah. And, you know, I want to say it's like, yeah, white male, not just in Western culture, you know, I mean, women are, have been rescued by men throughout the ages, or that's the idea across cultures, uh, wherever you look. But, you know, it doesn't start with an agenda that I have to write about this, but it is a world that is very well known and still no one knows anything about it. When you think about sex work or prostitution, everybody knows about prostitutes. Everybody knows about sex work. Everybody knows about red light districts, but no one really knows anything about it. That's that's what I always find. Like we have this idea, we have a stereotypes in mind, largely because of the films we see or, you know, the, the media that we consume. It's always portrayed in very stereotypical ways, even in fiction. And it's very hard to find a realistic painting of, of actually life in a red light district. It's either doom and gloom or it's a doom and gloom sub story or it is an inspiring story or it is a reportage. But you don't really see it, I've, I feel, depicted realistically in cultural media, whether that's films or books or novels and short stories like that. So when I started writing a story that had sex work and sex workers in it, I wanted to make it as close to real life as possible because what I came across in my experience and my research and my time talking to people there, that life was actually a lot more interesting than what people seem to be consuming as stereotypes in media. Well, let's talk a little bit about that research. Because your novel 
you know, I mean, it is a fictional story, but I really felt when I was reading it, everything felt very real. You know, the, the living conditions, the abuse, the police inaction, the work that the non-governmental organizations were doing to try to help the women. I mean, in some ways it felt like I was reading nonfiction. So mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about the research that you did do. Yeah, I mean, it's based on years of research. So my PhD, you have to have a critical element to the PhD. My my research actually focuses on public space and violence on women and gendered bodies in India, by which I mean, how does women or bodies that experience violence in societies like this, when they're using public space, how does it affect the rate of violence or, you know, because we often hear, well, why was this person, this woman out at 1am in a nightclub? Or why was she wearing this in this area? Why was she out after dark? The, The woman after dark is such a easy reason for people to cite as a justification for the violence women face outside of what is considered safe and and we all know that those are those are cop outs and you know it doesn't really matter what anybody wears sexual violence is about power so there's a lot of research that has gone into it so i'm glad to hear that it reads close to real life but as an author apart from all the research that you do when i had the first few drafts of the novel i was very certain about a few things that i wanted to do in the book one was not invent anything that hadn't happened or that wasn't true because I find that deeply disrespectful when you are dealing with something that has such deep real life consequences that has real life impact and you know I'm a, I'm a woman who grew up in India I've faced sexual violence I've face a harassment on the streets. It's just part of how you grow up. And obviously, just because it's normalized doesn't mean it's normal. And you don't want to disrespect the experience that people go through. Me at a much lower scale than someone in who's been sold into sex work does. But you don't want to devalue what people really go through by inventing fictions about it, where real life is so cruel anyway. So everything that happens in the book is actually something that has happened in real life. So there is either a crime that has happened or a report that has happened. Well, obviously, it's not it's not straight up taking people's life stories, but it is a, a lot of stuff that has happened over the years in these areas that I have read about and collated that, that have then put in the book so mm-hmm. i'm glad to hear that it that it rings true because uh, i did want it to ring true i think that was very much the point for me i feel like lolly is a character that you feel badly for because she didn't want to become a sex worker her parents kind of sold her to a brothel um, but she's you know she isn't a caricature of a prostitute. She's a a woman who has a full personality, insights, misgivings, things like that. Did her character change over time as you were writing her? And what was it like writing a character like like Lolly? Yeah, I mean, your own perception of your characters may not be necessarily the truth. I find it so hard 
to see my characters for what they are because in some ways you're really close to them and some ways it's like yourself like you don't know what you come across to other people in parties for example so right. it's, it's a bit like it's the same way with your characters sometimes feel that uh, lali in the first draft of the novel was quite angry and was quite belligerent in in many ways and and i hesitate to say this but it's probably because i was an angrier person than you <laughs> it's it's quite possible that um that 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 happened and you know there were there were quite a few scenes in the book where there, there was this rage in her that came out but somehow in subsequent versions that got toned down a lot but i don't think that that meant that she became docile in any possible way i think that it became more more complex as a character to me where it wasn't as straightforward as rage where there was a lot more internalized rage or a desire to do something about that rather than simply acting out or hitting somebody but i think lali in many ways is is the most difficult character to write for me was she was very difficult to write so and i never quite figured out how she was landing before the novel came out and readers who had never met me actually read the book because you know it's not a own voices novel at the end of the day i have not had the life that the women characters in my book have had that means that they, they, you know you can do a lot of research you can talk to a lot of people you can immerse yourself for 7 years and you can try to do it as ethically as possible but at the end of the day it's not your story you, you're not the person and i think that's fine because it's fiction but we do owe this sort of topics a lot of respect and part of that respect and part of doing it ethically was also not trying to make up stuff that I couldn't possibly know you know so it was writing around a certain kind of uh, not knowing of what it is like to be sold into sex work as a child let's put it that way you know and lali sort of emerged over multiple drafts as this person who had this this core hurt and uh, it was writing around that and and i'm glad that people have found her uh, a human character relatable character not one dimensional because that's definitely what i wanted to do but you know how you do it is not always a straightforward process there is no there's no formula especially when you're writing a character that's had life experiences that are much more marginalized than yours. You definitely saw that anger and that desire to do something, but I think it was almost like I thought of her as being I guess mature enough or smart enough that she sort of knew what the repercussions would be if she sort of just went off half cocked, which to me that seemed like that would be more real, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tilu he's very a very interesting character so he's the man who as you said starts out he's a client of of Lolly's he's in love with her yeah but he's also a writer who's really kind of enthralled with the history of Calcutta so the novel is set in is it Shonagachi yes that, it is yeah so i've read that that is asia's largest red light district now so when you were kind of doing that research and this is a little bit different because this is more of sort of the history of the area which i felt like you know reading about it at least through the lens of his character that you had you know really studied that so talk to us a little bit about the setting and and why you wrote the setting the way you did and and what research you had done into that 
I'm in love with Calcutta as a city. It's just uh, fascinating to me. I lived there between the ages of about 16 to 21, 22. So that's a very formative period uh, in anyone's life. And I think if you if you end up becoming a writer, what happens to you between 16 and 22 is is really fundamental in many ways. So Calcutta happened to me and I was in love with that city so, you know you do you do put so many easter eggs in a book that are really your own little hobbies and your own little obsessions so uh, that's how the history of calcutta came to be in there but the funny thing about tilu is that tilu is actually a self parody like all his um you know wanting to be this major writer like he has all these dreams of you know having people line up to get the book signed by him and stuff like that so you know it was it's all like making fun of myself at one level and you know uh, <laughs> ego trips we have we want to have as 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 writers he's also a version of my dead first book my my very literary first novel <laughs> which had this very serious male character so everything that i was doing seriously for the the male lead in my you know now dead in the ditch would be first book uh, is actually tilu but as a satire you know and that seemed to work so it was really making fun of my main character my literary main character from the other book that wasn't really working um and I, but i don't think of tilu as as entirely a parody character you know i mean he's a he, he's a real person he does things he has feelings he's he grows with the book he he has his own arc so his obsession with the history of uh, of of calcutta is is really my obsession and shonagachi is uh, a neighborhood in the north of calcutta calcutta is obviously pretty big city you know as somebody who studies public space as somebody who who's interested in how we think of our public space in terms of gender in terms of culture really it was very interesting to me that uh, there is this, the oldest parts of these big cities are usually the red light districts the red light districts are to be found in the oldest neighborhoods and often the relationship the legal relationship between sex work and the city is quite contested like for example in india uh, solicitation is illegal but sex work is legal so that's already a very confusing state mm. of affairs and of course like these are thriving neighborhoods lots of sex work happens in every city in the world whether it's legalized or not and in most places it's not legalized so i wanted to write a book about Calcutta and sex work in Calcutta but I didn't see a way of doing that without bringing the whole city into it uh, mm. so to speak because you know nothing is really closed off from each other it's it's not a bubble so everything was connected so that's how that came to be I'm wondering about how you categorize your novel because in the very beginning when we asked you to give us yeah. like an elevator pitch for it you said you thought it was a literary novel that has a murder in it but it's it was on the website crime reads um yeah. as being one of their top you know debut novels of the year i'm wondering if you think that it could also be categorized as noir fiction you know it is does have that sort of urban decay and grittiness to it what are your thoughts on that 
Yes, I think so. I think literary noir is probably the right way to go. But I think what what destabilizes that literary noir bit is that I always think of noirs as fairly serious books. I mean, they're pulpy, but they they do take themselves seriously. Like the characters take themselves seriously. The the, the narrator takes itself seriously, so to speak. And yours has a little bit of a sense of humor to it. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the narrative voice, and it's not something I, I I particularly set out to do, but there's a there's a storyteller's vibe. Like there is, to me, it feels like my novel has this uh, this voice where it's like, okay, sit down, I'm gonna tell you a story or the <laughs> thing, you know, which I don't think that that noir does because noir is quite serious. It, it does take itself quite seriously. So do literary novels. So there is a bit of lightness in my novel where it's not taking itself that seriously. You know, there is a joke, even if the joke is very dark or very uh, wry, there is a joke in the book. So which I think makes it slightly different from all of this. But I think the vibe, the idea, the atmosphere of the book is much more noir than it is thriller. But it is, of course, based on a crime. It starts off with a crime. There's a crime in the first four pages of the book. But to me, a thriller is uh, propulsive. But I think there is it. The book has elements of these things. But I didn't set out to write it in a particular genre. Let's put it that way. You know, I was publishing professionals come along and they say, "Well, you know, by the way, this is this," <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, okay, all right, thank you, <laughs> thanks." But I think it, it it does cross a few two boundaries. It was published in India before it was published in US and the world by Amazon Crossing, and uh, it was published by Picador India, who are a literary imprint, and it was acquired as a literary novel. So your book is being published in the U.S. through Amazon's publishing imprint, Amazon Crossing. And Amazon Crossing, it's an imprint that focuses on more global literature, a lot of award-winning and best-selling books from other countries besides the United States. Mm -hmm. When you were working with Amazon Crossing, did you have to make a lot of changes to your book content-wise? Or was it written in English? It was originally written in English, yeah. So yes, the, the book was published in English in, in India by Picador. And because I think Amazon Crossing is actually the US's largest publisher of translated books, uh, by far, it is uh, Amazon Crossing has published more translations in the US market than any other imprint. So I felt that they had the expertise to get this book out, get my novel out, because even though it's not translated fiction, it is original English, but it it has the sensibilities are from a different culture, you know, and I didn't make too much of an effort to westernize things because I feel that we are, we're truly past that point. If not now, then when, to be honest, like, I mean, and there has been much more acceptance of translated fiction worldwide. And even though my book is not a translated book, it just means that there is more appetite for reading books that are set in different cultures and are uh, deeply invested in those different cultures. Let's put it that way. You know, like uh, there was a time when people read books set in India or set in Pakistan or Japan, but only things that were sufficiently westernized or appealed to a Western sensibility. And I think that changed a lot now. 
people mm-hmm. are reading books that are set in Japan and are are completely Japanese and are you know immersed in that cultural universe. So, uh, luckily, I think that because of, of Amazon Crossing's commitment to you know bringing world literature to U.S. readers. And making and and popularizing that sort of uh, that sort of work. Of course, we did extensive edits, but not in any way that affected the meat of the book. It was mostly uh, American spellings or changing, you know, measurement stuff or going through some grammatical stuff, but sentence construction, that sort of thing. But at no point did I feel that I had to substantially change the book, which was um, a very you know a very very pleasant uh, surprise. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Are you working on anything new now? This one has had such great success. It's won awards and Gillian Flynn even held it up on the Today Show (laughs) (laughs) to talk about how much she liked it. That's so awesome. That was a great surprise because I had had no idea that that was happening. We had no idea that Gillian Flynn was going to read the book. We had no idea that she even had the book. So I woke up that morning and I had all these emails from the publicists going like, oh my God, like this happened. You're on the Today Show. And like everyone was very surprised. So guys, it's not a plug. That was real. And I mean, you know, coming from her as well, because I mean, uh, not all thrillers are created equal. Some are better than others. And I think just Gone Girl was such a tour de force. Like, uh, I mean, I read that book almost breathlessly. I think it just, obviously, it, it just, it gave birth to a genre or made it popular, but it was just an incredible book. One of the things that I absolutely love about Gillian Flynn, sorry, I've got to fangirl a little bit. <laughs> You're loud. <laughs> Thank you. I was, no, I was, what I love about her is, you know, her rendition of small town America in Gone Girl as well, like, you know, uh, small communities and sharp objects, especially. I think that it's, there are not many writers who do it well. Obviously, Stephen King is well known for it. Like, I read King for small town America. Like, there's just something mm-hmm. about his, his way of talking about small town America that's just fascinating. And I think Gillian Flynn, um, apart from her characters, like, I think people think the thrillers are for plot, but I don't think that thrillers are about plot. I think thrillers are about character. And um, she does that so incredibly well. Thrillers are about relationship and relationships and characters to me. And um, there's such depth in her character. So just coming from somebody whose work I truly admire, uh, you know, saying that she liked that book, I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty nice. (laughs) Yeah, but um, coming back to your actual question, um, I did make some beginnings uh, into two different novels. They're two very different kinds of novels. So I don't know which one I should be writing or if I should be writing both. This is I'm back to square one, like the first (laughs) novel where I was. Um, I've made some beginnings, but I've also I've also given birth about uh, three and a half weeks ago. So I've got a little newborn. So my head is all full of like you know, oh yes, um, like milk bottles and, <laughs> and diapers. <laughs> and it's not it's not a very writerly headspace where I am at <laughs> right now. But. Well, congratulations on your new baby. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great talking to you on all the ins and outs of your novel. 
you are in New Zealand. That's where we're talking to you today. And it is actually morning time. We're we're talking to you at five o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the United States. You're drinking coffee uh, where you are right now. Thank you for having breakfast with us. And we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Rajula Das, who is the author of Small Deaths and with my favorite book nerd, Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? So I actually read this book a little while ago. It's called The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease by Daisy Hernandez. So I love a good book about disease. Um, I don't know. I just, I I find diseases fascinating as long as I don't have them and they're not killing like millions of people around the world. But unfortunately, that's what diseases do. So this book is a really fascinating look at a disease that many, many Americans know nothing about, including the people who actually have it. So it's called Chagas disease. And it's named for Brazilian doctor Carlos Chagas. It's a parasitic disease that is transmitted by triatamine bugs, and they're known as kissing bugs, which are found in South America, New Mexico, and increasingly in places like Texas. So the author's aunt, who grew up in Colombia and was infected there when she was a child, lived with and eventually died from Chagas disease. So while many people who get Chagas have only a mild infection or they maybe have no symptoms, the parasite can lie dormant And it can cause all sorts of problems in the body later on. So many people, I would say probably most people develop like heart failure as a result of it, but it can also affect the digestive system, particularly the esophagus and intestines. And Hernandez explains her aunt's condition in this way. So I'm I'm quoting from the book. My aunt's large intestines had dilated, widened, begun to go loose inside her body. So it sounds just horrible. And so what the author does in her book is after her aunt dies, she then goes and she's sort of on this mission to find out more about it because her family sort of knew about it. Like people know about it, but they don't really understand it. So she was talking to to researchers and, you know, entomologists and people who have it. Maybe they have issues that affect their heart. They have to have a heart transplant. So the book is definitely about the disease, but it's also about families and relationships. And Hernandez spends time talking about her relationship with her aunt and how her aunt's illness impacted the entire family dynamic. So I thought it was a super quick read for me. I found it fascinating. Again, I didn't know anything about this disease. And I learned a lot about the author. And it's a disease that is impacting more Americans. Uh, it, you know, it could be a disease that becomes more widely known just as our population changes. So anyway, it's called The Kissing Bug, A True Story of a Family, an Insect, and a Nation's Neglect of a Deadly Disease by Daisy Hernandez. Okay, one question. So in the title, it talks about neglect. Is that referring to socioeconomic neglect? Yes. What is the neglect that they're referring yeah. to? Well, because a lot of people who have the disease are immigrants to the United mm-hmm. States. And so, you know, they may not have access to the health systems that other people have. And so you have these groups of people who can't necessarily access the health care that they really desperately need because of where they've come from. 
and the fact that they, they just don't have access or maybe they're having to work jobs where they don't get health insurance. Yeah. And the, the book touches on that as well. Okay. Well, Rajula, were you able to squeeze in any books before you had the baby? Yes, I was. And I keep meaning to be doing more reading, but it's easier to reach for the phone sometimes because it's closer <laughs> when you're nap trapped or, you know, you're feeding the baby and you mm-hmm. can't move. But yeah, I've been reading very slowly these two books that I really, really, really want to finish. One is Less which I think absolutely everyone except me has read by now by Andrew Sean Greer, because I do want to read the next one that's just come out, uh, Less is Lost. Like I'm just so close to finishing Less, which I'm absolutely loving. And I've just started on Harman Maria Machado's In the Dream House. Yeah. Um, she's just such a stunning writer. I just love all her essays anytime she writes anything like she could write Facebook posts and I would (laughs) read them all day she's just such a great writer and I've just made a start on In the Dream House uh, because it seems like such a fascinating book that I'd just love to read so I'm just at the beginning of that and I'm at the end of Less is where I am and they're just so wildly different books as well oh yeah I listened to the audiobook of In the Dream House and she narrated it. So that was, oh, yeah, that was that, good. As, a, as an audio book, like, do you, do you think that it, it, you got the, the book in, in the audio book form? Like, I do listen to a lot of audio books, but I find that certain kinds of books work more as an audio book. Yeah, uh, and I just thought that the, in the dream house, because it seems so, uh, you know, something that would require your attention, I thought mm-hmm. it might be easier, but I, I'll just listen to it if it's the author reading it herself. Yeah, I I didn't have any trouble. Sometimes I do with really involved novels. I'll have trouble. But usually if it's like essays or sort of nonfiction books, I seem to be able to pay attention a little bit better. But as far as Les goes, I think you're our second guest to recommend that one. I think that one won the Pulitzer Prize. It did win the book. Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, Les won the Pulitzer and Andrew Sean Greer. I've, I've heard so many of his interviews. Instead of finishing the book, I've been listening to his interviews. <laughs> so um, he's such a great interviewer. And honestly, I mean, I also don't want to finish it. It's just such a great book. I think, I think one of the best things about Les is that we don't often see humor or lightness or uh, happiness in a book you know I'm just going to be blunt and say there's something about us literary types that hate (laughs) happiness like (laughs) we don't like happiness in books like the books that we tend to talk about or hype up are not very happy books you know when you think about it and happiness is honestly hard to do I mean humor is very hard to do as any actor or voice actor or writer will tell you or comedian will tell you, to be honest. But I mean, uh, happiness is probably even harder, you know, like it's harder to write about, it's harder to depict, it's harder to bring into a narrative, because what do you do with it? What do you do with um, joy or general goodness? You know, there's there's nothing to talk about. It's just (laughs) a state of fulfillment. So there is there's no um, narrative engine there. But uh, unless it's just this incredibly well written book at at a level of prose, and that is so uh, compact, which is a very small book as well. And uh, just just the language in the book, without taking itself too seriously, whether ramming it down your throat, 
throat without you know talking about tragedy and honestly it's 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 easier to write good prose when it's in tragedy than it is in comedy so to speak it's just such an all-round great book with great characters but also with such lightness of touch the book will make you happy hmm. uh, which is not something that you can tell about most books to be honest I don't know if you'd want a book to make you happy, Carrie. You like those dark, depressing books. I do. I do. But sometimes I like a happy book. I mean, sometimes I surprise myself and and even I like a happy book. So <laughs> it's possible. It has happened before. It has happened before, yeah. <laughs> I, I love sad books. God, I love. Give me a sad love story. There's nothing better in the world than a sad, doomed love story. Like, <laughs> But that's what the dreams are made of as a writer. But, uh, well, Amy, I mean, Rajula gave such a review of less. I don't think you can top her review, but, but why don't you try? No, and the book I'm going to talk about is not a particularly happy book, but I really enjoyed it. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned a trip that my husband and I took to Ireland. And of course, I had to read some Irish-based books while I was there because that's what I do. I like to read books about the places that I'm traveling. And so I was very lucky in that a favorite author of mine, Emma Donahue, came out with a new book a couple of months ago that is set in 7th century Ireland. And the book is called Haven. And this is an example of the perfect book at the perfect time, at least for me. So Haven is the story of a priest and scholar named Art who believes the monastery that he's been living in is just too sinful. It's not godly enough. And so he has this dream that he believes was sent to him by God to take off on a mission to found a secluded haven on an island off the coast of Ireland where no human has ever lived before. So he chooses a very young priest and an old priest, and they set off in a boat down the River Shannon and out into the Atlantic looking for an island that they believe God has meant for them to find. So when they finally come up on the island in late spring, it's Skellig Michael, which is actually a true place. It is rocky without hardly a place to pull up a boat. It's not hospitable in any way to any animals, but there are birds. There's so, so many birds, and this becomes an important part of the story later on. But there's only one tree on the whole island, and it is stunted. But every step of the way, when the more lowly priests express concern that there's no fresh water or there's no wood in which to build shelter, Art, the head monk, becomes resentful that they are resistant to God's wishes. And so as the story progresses, what you get is a survival tale and an impending conflict as the The bounty of summer passes, like anything that they can grow, you know, turns into fall and all that goes away. When they move into fall, um, the two monks, but Cormac and and Trian, those are their names, are trying to survive. And Art only has eyes for what he believes God wants, which is denying themselves almost anything that makes them human. So this was perfect for my trip because I visited the ruins of a 6th century monastery, almost as old, I guess it was an 8th century monastery, so it was almost as old, and I visited the rocky cliffs on the western side of Ireland, which is where Skellig Michael is, and so I could just imagine all of this and how hard it would, would be to survive in those conditions. So Emma Donahue, she was born in Ireland, but she lives in Canada now. She's the author of numerous books, but probably her most well-known is 
Room, which was made into a movie and it was nominated for an Oscar, I believe. And another one of her books, The Wonder, which I also read and loved, is set in 19th century Ireland, and it also revolves around Catholicism and it's being adapted into a limited series starring Florence Pugh. If these two books are any indication, I think Emma Donahue has very complicated feelings about Catholicism or perhaps religion in general. Anyway, I loved it and I gave it five stars. Very good. I know I have a complicated relationship with Catholicism, so. Yeah, yeah I mean, she's not the only one. <laughs> she's in good company. She's in good company. Well, these all sound fantastic. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, Rajula is going to answer her three in the third degree. back with Rajula Das. She's the author of Small Deaths, and we're going to ask her our crazy questions. So number one, Rajula, you have lived all over the globe. Your roots are in India, but you got your PhD in Singapore. You mentioned living in Britain, and you now live in Wellington, New Zealand. So I am a food person, and I think food tells us so much about a culture. So using foods as your guide, what defines each of these countries for you? So glad you asked because I'm a huge food person. I love cooking. So yes, Singapore is a something I've stopped eating now, but uh, it's a barbecue stingray. Um, oh, a barbecue <laughs> stingray? I've, yeah. Okay, I've never I've, heard of that. I've stopped eating stingrays because I went to an aquarium and I saw the stingrays and they're so lovely. And you can see them <laughs> in the bay in Wellington. So I've just stopped. I, I, I've not eaten a stingray in at least 10 years. Okay, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry to stingrays, but it's, it's what I think of um, Singapore. Food, barbecue stingray is divine. And for in Wellington, it's two things, coffee and burgers. Like you will not believe the number of cafes and burger places in in New Zealand that we have, all very handmade and small batch and all very fancy. So I think of those two. And if you think about UK, then what defines UK for me is, you know, I'm I'm really sorry, but it's fish and chips. Like there's (laughs) really is I I ate a lot of fish and chips when I was in UK. Yes. And what about your home country of India? Like when you're thinking about that, what pops into your head? There is no such thing as Indian food because there is no one thing that we consume in India. Like it's just, it's just basically like the European Union, really. So any part of India that you go to will have its own sort of stereotypical food. And I know that, you know, a lot of the spices are in common and stuff, but then so is Mexican food or like, you know, South, yeah. South American, like we, we use cumin. That doesn't make it the same. So anyway, so I guess for me, from my part of the world in India, we are fish eaters. We love eating rice and fish. So literally the rest of India makes fun of us because we eat so much <laughs> rice and fish. <laughs> so for me, my favorite food is a homemade light fish stew which is actually very similar to a bouillabaisse because it uses cumin and it's a light broth with some white rice. Steaming white rice with fish stew is my favorite. Oh, that sounds good. I'm hungry. (laughs) I I haven't eaten dinner yet, so I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Question two. So we had talked about Gillian Flynn recommending your book and also being a writer you admire. So who is another thriller or mystery writer that is a favorite of yours and why? Um, I have to go with the queen of of mysteries herself, Agatha Christie. I was a huge fan of Agatha Christie growing up. I must have read every one of her books, except the Tar Spy series. I just don't think Mm. she was such a great spy series writer. But I, I read all her mystery books so many times over and so many biographies of her. She's definitely a favorite of mine because I think like each time... You know, as I got older and, uh, you know, as a writer, when I t- took writing seriously, reading Agatha Christie, uh, and when I think about her, it is, again, you know, it's about relationships. And that sort of goes back to my point about Gillian Flynn as well. Like, I think a good mystery or a good thriller or a psychological novel, it's about characters and it's about relationships. And Agatha Christie, you sort of come for the cozy crime, but you stay for the relationships like it is mm. it is really about people's motivations and why people do the things that they do and Miss Marple and, and Hercule Poirot were such great characters that broke the mold of what you thought uh, you know a detective should be so she was really doing very interesting things with form and uh, motivation in her own time all within the bones of very predictable genre and she had her own formula as well. But it's such a great formula. <laughs> and um, even though she wrote so many books, it never felt like she was uh, cannibalizing herself or like just replicating mm-hmm. the same formula over and over. They, they, all the books are, are fresh in their, in their own ways, like especially in their treatment of relationships and uh, a character's deep motivations. Uh, and of course, in the, in the characters of, of her detectives who were not your usual suspects. For, for a crime solver. So yeah, I'd have to go with her because I think she was really uh, very ahead of her time. She was actually quite a path-breaking writer, you know, in her own right, in, in terms of form and the actual craft. It's They're deceptively easy books, but I don't think they were very easy books to write. Okay, well, your last question I feel like I'm, I'm I sort of know the answer to this. <laughs> I think I might too, but we're going to ask anyway. Yeah. So if there were 25 hours in the day instead of 24, how would you spend that extra time? I would spend it sitting down. Honestly, I would just, <laughs> ever since I've had a baby, like even though I'm not employed at this point of time, not working full time, which I've always done, work full time and had the book on the side. So I've been up till 2, 3 a.m. for years. But it's still having a newborn is hard work. Mm. People, <laughs> if you didn't know, PSA, it's really hard work. <laughs> It is the hardest. <laughs> I, would, I would literally stare. I would actually finish the blanket that I started knitting when I was pregnant. <laughs> That's what I would do. I would sit down and I would knit for an hour. It's very I thought you might say sleep because yeah. that's what I would have said with the newborn. Maybe your maybe your sweet little baby sleeps better than mine uh, did. He does. He's a good little sleeper, but I'm gonna knock on wood as I say that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You don't want to jinx yourself. No. <laughs> well, Rajula, it has been so fun chatting with you and learning more about you. You have a fascinating life, the different places you've lived and experiences. And we're just so pleased about your debut novel, Small Death. So thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Carrie and Amy. If your listeners read the book, please let me know how you feel about it. My website is just my name, rajuladas.com. You can always reach me through there or on social media. And I would love to hear what you thought of the book and what genre you would categorize it as. You can find Rajula Das on Instagram at Rajula Das, that's spelled R-I-J-U-L-A-D-A-S, and at her website, www.rajuladas.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod, and on Facebook, Perks of Being a Book Lover. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.